Amen. All right, going back four weeks ago, what was the third point? I'm just kidding. What was the main point of Galatians? No, no, that, that's right. Yeah, that was part of it because there they, they were the, uh, the Judaizers, the false teachers. Faith. That, that was our one word, which you don't have if you distort the truth. So, yes. What was the one word on uh, Ephesians? Grace. Grace. Yeah, the first three chapters are what God has done for us, and we don't get to anything we do until chapter 4. So Galatians was about faith, Ephesians was about grace, and what was Philippians about? Humility, yeah, or as Pastor Brad would say, humility. I don't know why, but he doesn't say his H's, it's weird. So that brings us to our study tonight on Colossians, which is about new life. Colossians is about new life. Here's some background for Colossians so we can understand uh, when Paul wrote the letter, uh, a lot of these letters Paul's written from prison, and what on this one, it appears that after Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus, which we studied that two weeks ago, it appears that after he preached the gospel um, in Ephesus, a guy named Epaphras carried the gospel from Ephesus back to his hometown. So there's a cool reminder here, even as we're just looking at when the book was written and why it was written was this guy Epaphras heard the gospel in Ephesus, and then he went from Ephesus up the Lycus Valley to a town called Colossae, or Colossae, however you want to say it, where put whatever emphasis on whichever syllable you prefer. We're going to go with Colossae tonight, because I feel better about it. Sometime thereafter, uh, some situations arose in Colossae that confused Epaphras, and what he did was he went back to his first teacher for further instruction. So Paul is in Ephesus, preaches the gospel, Epaphras hears it, goes up to Lycus Valley to Colossae. Some things happen in Colossae that trouble him, and he doesn't have a great understanding of what to do, so he goes back to Paul to get an answer. So Paul sends this letter back up to Lycus Valley uh, to the churches that were meeting there, particularly a church meeting in the town of Colossae. Colossae was no Jerusalem. Colossae was nothing like Rome or Athens or Corinth or Ephesus. And we have no record of Paul ever visiting there. It was a smaller town off the beaten path. When the letter was written, Colossae was sort of a middle-sized town located on a main road. After the New Testament period, however, a new road was laid further west, which Colossae, uh, which took Colossae um, off of the traveler's path. The town then declined in numbers, eventually becoming entirely depopulated. As I'm reading these facts, I don't know if what came to my mind is what immediately comes to y'all mind, but it's essentially the story of Radiator Springs and Route 66 in the movie Cars. I mean, that's exactly what happened here. I'm sitting there reading that going, so they were a town, middle-sized, and they built a new highway to the west, and then it dwindled. I'm like, what have I seen that? And then I was like, that's Radiator Springs. So Colossae is Radiator Springs. Um, that's probably the only thing anyone's going to remember tonight, but that's okay. So as we're reading these shorter uh, pastoral epistles, I just want to remind and encourage y'all to read these books in their entirety. You can read Colossians in 15 minutes, reading it out loud slowly. So as we're doing this, it's really good to spend some time 
Um, it's one of the benefits that we have while studying through these books that we don't have when we're studying through things like Romans and Hebrews and things like that. So I just want to encourage you all to do that. So here is our outline for the night. This new life that Colossians talks about, it begins and ends with God, it involves ourselves, and it involves living for others. Those are our three things we're going to consider tonight. So number one is that new life begins and ends with God. And one of the questions that's kind of answered over the course of this book is, can people really change? Um, There's lots of debates on can people change, Uh, there's other debates on should people change, Um, and, and this is a book about the change that comes with a new life. So new life begins and ends with God. First, we're going to see that it's given by God. So that's the first little bullet point under number one. New life begins and ends with God. It's given by God. Look at 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is all, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Now as I'm reading this, I just want you to be mindful, he's never been here. He's never met any of these people. His connection to this group of church people, this group of new believing Christians, is simply through Epaphras, who heard him share the gospel, and Epaphras went and told his people. And so this love and affection that you hear is a genuine love and affection that exists in Christ. And as you're reading, I want you all to keep that in mind because he's talking to someone who's clearly beloved, and and he's using language that is um, indicative indicative of such. And so it goes on to say, he says of Epaphras, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So Epaphras has been kind of a go-between between Paul and the church in Colossae. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How in these verses do we see new life given by God. What what do we see happening in those verses that are indicators that this new life is given by God? Take a minute to read back through them if you need. Look at the verbs and who's doing the verbing. Yep, deliverance. So God delivers. What else? Say that again. Yep, he fills people with the knowledge of his will. That's God's doing. So what else is God's doing? Giving strength. It's God's doing to give strength to them. What else? Giving them spiritual wisdom. What else? Showing 
Yeah, the ability to bear fruit. <laughs> Everything begins with God. It's given by God. What we see as we read through those 14 verses is the qualifying, the rescuing, the bringing, the redeeming, the forgiving, the strengthening. We covered, I think, all of those in what y'all said. is all done by God. So the new life that we have in Christ is given by God, and it's lived for God. We look again at 110, where it just says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Dever makes a point. He says that Christ invites us to stop delighting supremely in ourselves and to begin delighting supremely in him. The invitation in this new life is stop delighting in what you want and yourself and you delight in him. If God, so this gets to God's idea is that he would be delighted in above and beyond everything else. And so if God delights in anything more than himself, God is guilty of idolatry. Why? Kind of a deep thought, but it gives us our motivation here. God wants us to delight in him because God most delights in himself. So the point there is that God, if he delights in anything more than himself, God is guilty of idolatry. Why? Think about what we've been talking about in Romans. Think about the previous weeks. Why would God be guilty of idolatry if he delighted in anything more than he delights in himself? He'd be putting something above God. How? He'd be worshiping the created. Okay. And what, what, what would that look like? Like, how, what else happens there? Yeah, trading the truth. Ignoring the creator. What, what would the exchange be? Trading the truth for what? A lie. So what would the lie be? That there's something greater than God. Or that there's something more delightful than God. There's something um, above God that could be delighted in. And so if God delights in anything more than he delights in himself, God's guilty of idolatry. And that gives us our motivation for delighting in him far above everything else. is because we are created in his, in his image. So as image bearers, we should delight in him the most, the same way that he delights in himself the most, because there's nothing that is more delightful than God. And if you think that, you've traded the truth for a lie, you've made an exchange, you've worshipped and served the creature, or the creation, above the creator. So it fits totally with everything we've learned about idolatry out of Romans 1 over the last five weeks. God can't delight in anything more than, him, more than himself. So this new life is given by God, it's lived for God in Colossians, and then it is lived with God in Colossians. We just read in 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And look over at 120. It says, and then through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven 
and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What does this new life that is lived with God look like according to these verses? A new life lived with God. Living with God is what, according to those verses? Stable and steadfast? Holy and blameless? We're reconciled to him, brought back to him, part of his son's kingdom, to him, to him, to him. There's a, there was a, well, throughout the years, there's been different arguments against faith and against, uh, um, there's some who are deists who don't like Christianity, um, but some, some would argue that God, you know, the God who is above all, um, some argue that he can't be known, some argue that the idea of a relational movement between us is just sort of a romanticism that we created because of our relational lingo as individualistic maybe Americans or just individualistic uh, thinking people. And so there's people that would argue that um, the notion of being close to God is crazy. And, And the reality is that the notion of being close to God is crazy, if not for Christ. But one of the beauties that we have in Christ, this new life in Christ, is reconciled to God. It's a closeness that can't exist without Jesus. But in Jesus, we're mindful of it, we understand it, and we try to move in it accordingly. So this new life is given by God. It's lived for God. It's lived with God. Um, Consider how adversity is different with God than without. Like That's one way to consider this life with God. What ways have you guys faced adversity and found that it's different to face that adversity with God as opposed to without God. It's hope and strength there. Yeah, you can trust that it's not a mistake. It's not just some big cosmic screw up that you're in the situation that you're in, but that there's some will, there's some plan, there's some... Um, sovereignty to your situation. What else? Yeah, there's opportunity to exercise that steadfastness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, him being, his strength being made perfect in our weakness is incredibly helpful when we are feeling weak. I was thinking about this, you know, this whole, the difference between the two, and a lot of us began our journeys as children, and so it's kind of hard to look back at that back when we were dead in our trespasses, or back when we were, before we were alive in Christ, back when we were alienated, um, strangers, back when we were completely hopeless. Like I was trying to, as I was reading this today, I, I listened to the whole thing on my little Bible app this morning. I was reading it and just looking at it, I was thinking, man, it's just kind of, I don't know if we spend much time doing that because a lot of us were little children when we were in that state. And when we moved from darkness to light, we were really young. I'm hesitant to ask it because obviously it could get weird, but is anyone, did anyone come to faith later in their life and they can remember what that sense of hopelessness was like? Or was it profound enough when you were a kid 
that you can remember that hopelessness and that darkness and sort of the profound thing that happened when, when the truth of Christ broke open into your life? Does anyone have any memories of that or what that was like? Or, or even if you, not, if you don't, like, I encourage you all to think back to that spot. Yeah? Yeah? Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. 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 Man, I was so hesitant to ask that, and I'm so glad I did. And thank you for sharing that. That is a wonderful example of that burden being lifted. Has anyone, um, raise your hand if you've read Pilgrim's Progress. Like when you were describing that, the picture in my head was when Pilgrim drops his pack and, and is rid of the burden that he was carrying on his own. That was that picture that, Yeah. like a weightiness. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. See, that, that's just, I don't know, I, I kind of wanted to go there tonight because I was just, as I was thinking through it, I was like, so many of us were little kids and we don't think about that burden. We don't think about that hopelessness. And it's almost like hopefulness can become sort of commonplace, which in a sense that's okay because we're supposed to dwell in the, the redemption that we have, but there's something about being really thankful that we don't have ever even a moment of hopelessness when we're in Christ and we can kind of see it for what it is um, and, and be hopeful in all circumstances. Um, did anybody else have anything they want to share before we move on? Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. It's such a wonderful reminder that new life really is new life, that change really does happen, and we should never we should never be hopeless for ourselves, we should never be hopeless for other people, because we ourselves are ones who were dragged from darkness into light, and there's a significant encouragement there. Um, you know, Paul, uh, Paul wrote a lot of these letters from prison. I mean, he's, rather than sitting and, you know, you know, in sorrow and anguish, he's writing letters to people and ministering to people through prayer. And in Acts 16.25, we see a picture painted of Paul in prison singing hymns and worshiping at night and being quite different from, I guess, what the average prisoner who was without hope might be. And so this being reconciled to God in this new life, you know, for Paul, it didn't mean that he was somehow not in jail when he was worshiping it. He was in jail. Like, that was his reality. And so we each have our struggles that are just the same. That's our reality. It doesn't mean that we get out of all the struggles. It doesn't mean that there's, you know, the prosperity gospel of, you know, follow Jesus and everything will go right. Um, it's just an affront. I mean, if I just consider the people who are sitting in this room, some of y'all have had a really, really, really hard year and or a hard two years or a hard five years. And so it's good to be reminded that things are different when you face that those adversities and struggles with Christ. Things are different. It's Paul is an example of that, singing and rejoicing in prison. The circumstances were bad, but the quality and the tenor of his life had changed because his relationship with God had changed. So we have this new life that begins and ends with God. And then new life involves ourselves. So there's a part of, there's some responsibility we have ourselves. Um, Paul describes this in three ways. The first thing is that we are changed radically. We're changed radically. The great reversal is described in chapter 2 and summarized in verse 13 where it just says, I mentioned it earlier, but it says, um, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgive us, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against, against us with its legal commands. If you are a Christian, this is your experience. This is your story. And that's kind of why I went where we went earlier about considering when we were in that place. You were dead. Now you are alive. Look at 3.1. As, as we see this radical change that that happens in the life of a, of a new believer who has new life, who has this thing that's happened outside of them, we do see a call for them to do something. And in three one it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I mean, you can tell the same guy who wrote this wrote Romans 1. In these two you once, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, so we saw what we put off and put to death, now put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The difference between the old self and the new self is profound. Um, very, very significant when you read those like that back to back. Um, Dever has a note in his study where he says that for too long, churches in our land have been guilty of letting people think that they are saved when their lives clearly demonstrate otherwise. A lot of churches have abandoned the church discipline process, um, and that's a process whereby people are brought back into um, uh, repentance through the urging them towards repentance. And so he, he makes this note that for too long, we allow the church to just kind of look like the old self. We allow the church to just look like the way it used to be. One of the things I thought about as I was preaching Romans, and I couldn't, not any kiddos in here. I couldn't really talk about it on Sunday morning, or I wasn't going to because of the mixed nature of the crowd. But um, you know, like the the idea that people can be homosexual and be in the church at the same, or be not they can be in the church, but to be Christians in right standing with God while also professing to be homosexual—that holding on to both the lie and the truth. Like some of us act like that is just the most shocking. Like how in the world, like. What could happen in their minds to make them think it would be okay to just be a Christian in fine standing um, while also proclaiming to be gay? And one of the things I thought about, and it goes to this old self, new self thing, is how long have we been completely okay in the church with people being there that live just according to lust? I mean, just, I want what I want when I want it and no one says anything about it or does anything about it. I mean, I know I grew up at a church where there were a number of young unmarried people who were doing things that shouldn't be done by young unmarried people. And it was almost winked at like, oh, well, kids will be kids. You know, it is what it is. And even within the youth group, there was just rampant um, sexuality that was being expressed in vile ways because it wasn't marriage. And it's just, I don't know, I, I think in turn, you know, when he, when he says this deal that churches in our land have too long have been guilty of letting people think that they're saved when their lives clearly demonstrate otherwise, there's a number of times growing up where I think I could look back and say, gosh, a majority of my friends looked more like the old self than the new self, but it, they were 
they have that date in the front of their Bible where they got saved. And they have their date of baptism they can look back on. And it's not supposed to be that way. You know, that, I use that example of just this rampant sexuality and, you know, um, lust that exists. It's a, in Romans, it's this progression. It's given over to lust, given over to homosexuality. This is going to be given over to a debased mind. And if it's a progression, we shouldn't be surprised at what people are trying to state is natural and normal that's not natural and that's not normal. The old self and the new self look different and should be different because that is who we are in Christ, that new self. Um, these verses explain a really radical change. Without such change, you cannot be saved. Without the kind of change that's described here, you can't be saved. It's not possible to say, I am saved, keep living in the ways of the old self, and actually be saved. By implying that people don't need change in the name of charity and compassion is robbing people of the hope that they can have in Christ. What are some ways that we might be guilty of implying that people don't need change in the name of charity and compassion? Some ways that we might be guilty of implying that people don't need to change in the name of charity and compassion. Just overlooking, yeah. What offenses can we overlook biblically? Proverbs 19 says it is his glory to overlook an offense. What does that mean? What are the offenses that can be overlooked biblically? Okay. Not things that are offensive to God. Yeah. I think the overlookable offense there is... Um, it's our, our glory to overlook an offense. I remember the first time I read that, and I thought, I mean, I was, I was well into my adult life. In fact, it was when Ben and I went up to the peacemaking conference training. And they said, you know, the first thing you can do when someone wrongs you is just overlook it. And I was like, I've never thought that. I've never considered, because, I don't know, I'm one of those people that's wired to have a significantly high sense of justice. I want to see justice. I want to see it in a profound manner. I want it to be obvious. I want it to be, to be swift. And when I see this thing in Scripture that's like, you know, when you're wrong, the first thing that could happen is you overlook the offense. It's like, well, that's an option too, I guess, that I've never considered until my adult life. I know I didn't ever consider that with my brothers growing up. We didn't overlook anything. We would get into fights over everything. But there's these overlookable offenses that essentially an overlookable offense is, is this is it possible that this, is, this could just have happened but not actually change your relationship? You're not going to carry it around. It's not going to keep getting in the way. Someone said something they shouldn't have said, but they don't, they're not characterized as saying that. They're, and your relationship isn't characterized with those dynamics. Those are overlookable offenses. So that means that anything that has a direct relationship, a direct impact on relationships in a fracturing, breaking, lying, untruthful way, those are the things that have to be addressed. So with that in mind, what are some ways that we can imply people don't need to change in the name of charity and compassion? With that in mind, what are some ways that we might be implying that people don't need to change in the name of charity and compassion? Don't confront, yeah. Don't confront people because we don't want conflict. 
who are the people we should be confronting? Let's make sure we're clear on the in the household of God. Yeah, First Corinthians five. I'm actually going to probably send out an email tomorrow, following up on this. But you know, in Romans one, we're talking about you know what this looks like. These things that we address and. If someone is inside of the household of God, you take them to a place like Romans 1 and talk about specifics. If they're, talk, if they're struggling with lust or a debased mind or homosexuality and saying, I'm a Christian, but this is what I'm struggling with, you take them to Romans 1. If they're outside of the house of God, 1 Corinthians 5 says, we do not judge those outside of the house of God, but those inside. So what do we do with those outside? We just take them to the gospel. You show them the truth about Jesus. You show them the truth about the human problem, and they see themselves in that human problem. It's a, it's a bit of a different approach. But I think that when it comes to this kind of change that we should expect for those who are saying they are new in Christ, we can't in the name of this sort of compassion and charity where it's like, I just don't want to offend them. I don't want to get in their way. And I'm just not going to say anything. Let's just let them keep doing what they're doing. Sometimes that means let's just let them keep living together. Let's just keep let them sleeping together. Or let's just let them keep, what are some behaviors that are damaging that we should speak up about that we don't? Slander, gossip. What else? Behaviors that we might tolerate in the church that we shouldn't. Because we're being compassionate, showing some charity. wouldn't wreck up the miles yeah <laughs> you should if he's a fellow brother in Christ you should call him out for being a crook for lying and cheating people yeah that is theft that one made the big 10 yeah there's just it's just something to think about I mean you know I, I think we could spend the rest of our time kind of thinking through these things like what are some things we just allow that we shouldn't really be okay with because it's not fitting for those who have new life in Christ. And you're robbing people of the hope that they could have in Christ by not talking about that. Sometimes it's sort of a charity and compassion. Ah, they're young or, or they're new or I don't want to offend them or I don't know them all enough to say that, but they're professing Christians. Other times it's, um, it has more to do with we don't think they can actually change. You ever struggle with that? Like, we don't actually think about the profound nature of the new life in Christ to the point where we see someone in a struggle, and struggles come in. I mean, everyone in this room has some kind of struggle, some kind of faith struggle. That's kind of something that's drawn out in Colossians. There's new life, but you have to put to death what's earthly in you. And so we should be able to relate in our struggles, but then we have to always make sure not to think that someone's too hopeless, too to outside of the reach of grace. And that, if that keeps you from addressing a fellow brother or sister in Christ, that, that's something you need to repent of so that you can make sure that they see the hope that exists for change. Um, so the first thing in that is that um, we're changed radically, but then we're also contested uh, dramatically. Um, this change that happens isn't like easy overnight, everything changed. It's full of hope. There's amazing potential, but it's contested. There's two ways in this new life uh, that we have that, that we're contested. First is from without in the form of empty promises. Look at 2.4. 2.4 says, 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why are these philosophies that he's warning against dangerous? Why are they dangerous? They lead you away from Christ. And what are they leading you towards? What? Idolatry and relying on what? Traditions. Self, human wisdom. So these are dangerous philosophies that he warns against because they're going to contest you in your new life in Christ. They will encourage you to rely on human wisdom, be it yours or someone else's, and not on Jesus. And look at 2.11. It says, um, in, him you all, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's moving backwards to try to manufacture your own righteousness. The, the circumcision that we need is in the heart. And so that happens in Christ. But to try to manufacture your own righteousness, be it through circumcision, actually, like they were talking about, or just anything else, is moving backwards and away from um, the life we have in Christ. In 2.16, it says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that, are, uh, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. There are things that you will be um, contested with that look like a good idea, is what he said. It's, it, the problem isn't that they're just complete morons that just can't see the truth for truth. The problem is that there's plausible argumentation, plausible options that are being presented to them that look the part. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, not some value. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying here is rely on Christ entirely or not at all. That's one of the big points in the book of Colossians. Rely on Christ entirely or not at all. Rules cannot create new life. Moralism needs to die. It, it is all about new life in Christ. So this first thing is that we're contested pretty dramatically by thoughts and ideas that seem really reasonable. But then we're also, and the second thing, our new life is contested dramatically from within because of the old self. In 3, 1 through 11... Um, we just read all of that, but that's the if then if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above, you've died with Christ, 
put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you and has all the lists, the list of things that we're supposed to put to death. Even though the old self has died, Christians must continue to put to death the earthly nature. The old self has died. Even though the old self has died, the call here is for Christians to put to death the earthly nature. God has changed us radically, therefore Christians must live radically changed lives. Dever notes that in this world, our new life in Christ does not have a monopoly. It still faces competition for the mind and the heart and the will. Now, it's not the cosmic struggle between good and evil that some people paint sort of a caricature of. What he's saying here is a monopoly would mean that there's no contest, that you'll never be tempted in any way, and that in the tempting, you'll, you'll, never, be, you'll never struggle to the point of maybe actually giving in to the temptation. That would be a monopoly. That would be nice, and that's certainly what we have to look forward to in glory. That's what it means to be completely glorified and without sin. But here what we're seeing is... In this world, our new life in Christ doesn't have that monopoly. It faces competition for the mind, competition for the heart, and competition for the will. So it's contested dramatically, but it's lasting permanently. And 111, lasting permanently is this next part. 111 just says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And then 22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, um, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven which I Paul became a minister real believers endure by striving to endure like that's our, that's our, that's our we run the race by running the race <laughs> we endure by striving to endure Yet we're kept through no effort of our own. Um, remember Philippians 1.6 last week. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring, it to, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we lay hold of that which is laid hold of us. We run the race so as to win it, knowing that it's already been given to us, the victories in Christ. And so there's... Sometimes when we see tension in Scripture... This is a tension, right? T-E-N-S-I-O-N, tension... Not attention. This is tension. When we see tension in Scripture, sometimes we're tempted to try to relieve that tension. And so when we see, you know, things like um, first shall be last, last shall be first, and we see these things that don't make sense, we want to grab hold of one and let go of the other, or grab hold of the other and let go of the one. And when you see tension in Scripture, um, I forget which theologian it was. Um, I think it was Spurgeon responding to someone asking about um, what God has done and the responsibility that we have. And he, and he said, you know, sir, how do you reconcile those two things? God's done all this, yet we have this responsibility. The responsibility doesn't earn it, but you have to do it to prove that you have it. How do we reconcile this? And, um, and his response was, I, I make it a point never to try to reconcile friends. I make it a point to never try to reconcile friends. And what that means is when you see something in tension in Scripture where it's like, okay, there's this, this thing that's happened and it's complete and it's full and we rejoice in it and there's nothing we can do to add to it, yet we have responsibilities. It kind of can look like they're, they're, there's a tension there, but don't try to reconcile friends. That tension is there for a reason. It's part of God's will and God's design. Don't ever think that you're all, always doing it on your own, but also don't ever think that you don't have any responsibility. Both of those are ditches that we're supposed to try to avoid. Real believers endure by striving to endure, and God will finish what he has begun in the lives of every one of his children. 
this last part that we're going to finish in these last five, ten minutes or so, is that new life involves living for others. This new life, as it's explained in Colossians, this third point is that it involves living for others. When lived out, this new life will always mix our lives up with others. That's why again and again from our pulpit here and from the leadership you hear, there's no lone rangers in the faith. Part of our membership covenant is to know and to be known because new life in Christ will always lead to your life being mixed up with other people's lives. It's exemplified by Paul. Paul is writing them. Paul's written a lot of other people, but he's writing Radiator Springs here, even though it's not as significant as Rome. He's writing them. That's, that, that's him getting involved with them, be, not because he's meddling, but because he's, he has new life in Christ and they have new life in Christ. Look at 1, 3 through 6. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before, um, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul thanks God for them, so he writes them. He thanks God for them. In one nine, he prays for them. In one twenty four, he preaches and he suffers for them. And this verse is a really important verse and understanding what life looks like with other people when we have new life together. In 124, it says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. What's the weird phrase in there that sticks out that almost looks like they shouldn't have said it? Say that again? In the flesh what is lacking, but lacking what? In Christ. So when you first read that, I know when I first read it, I'm like... um, I don't think anything's lacking in Christ. I think Christ, like, he was, like, perfect at his work. He's the only, that's the only work that's ever been done that wasn't lacking. So what does it mean that, um, that he, not even in his spirit, in his flesh, is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Has anyone ever read the book, by this title, um, the Filling Up the Afflictions, that John Piper wrote. Has anyone read that? It's a little red book, the Swan series. It's good. The whole series is good. Does anyone know what this means? It's a confusing piece of text. So I pulled an excerpt, or a couple excerpts out of that book because Piper, like, always does a really good job of explaining things. And I was trying to figure out a way to explain it in my own words. And I was like, well, this is dumb because his words are completely sufficient. But in in just a few words, he really explains what it means to be filling up in our flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. At first, it looks like, did Jesus not get some of the work done? Is there something lacking that we're supposed to do? And some people wrongly Take that verse to mean that, to mean like, well, Jesus, Jesus did like 
you know, 90. So y'all do 10. And that's not what it means. So Piper goes on to say in the book by this title, Paul's sufferings fill up Christ's afflictions, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. Does that make sense? The afflictions aren't doing something that wasn't done by Jesus, and they're not adding any value to what Jesus did. It's simply taking those afflictions to the people that they were meant to save. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they're not seen and known and loved among the nations. There are other people who do not yet know that they are the children of God. And the way that they will know is by you making sacrifice in your flesh, filling up the afflictions of Christ to go and tell them, to travel to them, to share the message with them, to adopt them, whatever it might be. He goes on to say, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. What we're seeing here is that if your goal is to live an affliction-free life, you're missing the point. If your goal is to get through all this unscathed and not having to face any kind of affliction, God's design, his purpose, is that the afflictions of Christ would be filled up by you being willing to make sacrifice and willing to be afflicted for his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering that he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. That is very convicting to me. I, I lean towards comfort. If I'm going to cruise, I'm going to cruise in the direction of ease. And this is a significant reminder. This feeling, He's rejoicing in his own sufferings, the things that have gone wrong, the things that were frustrating, the relationships that were frustrating, the communications and the conversations that were frustrating, the dynamics of life that were frustrating, things that I, I had everything lined up, they were supposed to go this way, and then this happened. And it just wasn't what I thought it would be. And it, and it meant that he would have to do things. For him, it meant, I'm going to keep sharing the gospel even though I keep, putting in, keep getting put in jail for it. That's what it meant for him. And it means something like that for everybody. There's no affliction-free option when it comes to being a child of God. There's, we're not allowed to be dispassionate and uncaring about the fact that there are people who don't know Jesus. This is something you're going to be hearing more from the leadership this year as we make some plans to lean forward in the church, making sure we're obeying this double love command of loving God and loving people. To love people, you have to be willing to experience affliction in your own flesh so that they can see that and see something of Jesus, so that the gospel makes more sense. Why are they here? Why are they making a sacrifice to love me, to encourage me, to make dinner for me, to have me in their home, to pay my light bill, to have a conversation with me when they're not even really a friend? Why are they being so friendly to me when my friends aren't even being that friendly to me? Why is the church so bright and so salty and so aromatic that it seems like they don't even care about their stuff? They don't even care about their time because they're being so generous with their time and so generous with their stuff. That is the picture 
that this paints when we are filling up the afflictions of Christ in our flesh. Yeah, I mean, and even the fact that he was willing to go and do what he did would have made those pastors more willing to come to him when it was needed because he had already kind of set the example. And so I, I think this, at, at the very least, this causes us to say, what's off limits? Like, what's off limits to me? I'm, I'm willing to be inconvenienced at a level three. But what happens when it's going to take like a level five inconvenience? You know, what do we do there? Like, really, I think that's fitting, and this is we're looking at Colossians, to think through, at what point am I not willing to be afflicted? Have I drawn a line somewhere way shy of where I should be drawing the line? I mean, a lot of times, that we do it out of fear, and it's because we have to deal with the fear. We have to confess that fear. I mean, there's times where, I mean, there's parts of the world I do not really want to go to at all. And a lot of that's fear, because there's terribleness going it sounds like it's happening outside right now now we're a little over that's that's their subtle way of saying hurry up scott and um maybe a little less subtle this week than last so anyway it's fitting to consider that and at the last part of colossians uh it's lived out in every sphere this new life affects home life it says uh, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wife the way Jesus loves the church. So this new life invades your home, and then it even invades your work, because it goes on to say, servants obey your masters, and masters treat your servants well, which in that time it was bosses and, and not bosses. And so we see just it completely invading every area of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our new life in Christ, and that we get to go and talk about it with our kids who are right outside. In Jesus' name, amen.